You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are both former guests of the podcast who have graciously come on. They're good friends. They're calling on again to have a general discussion about the American presidency, a topic that never seems to lose its power. Uh, Mark Updegrove is the president and CEO of the LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson Foundation, and serves as a presidential historian for ABC News. Mark Lawrence is the director of the LBJ Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. Until January 2020, he taught as a professor of history at UT Austin, where his classes focused on American and international history. Mr. Updegrove came on a few months ago. We discussed his book, Incomparable Grace, JFK in the Presidency. Mr. Lawrence came on and we dissected Lyndon Baines Johnson as best we could. It seems to me that both of them are ripe for PhD dissertations through the next several centuries. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us. So first, real quick, uh, how did you two meet? I came on as the director of the LBJ Presidential Library in 2009, and the founding director, a friend of both Mark's and mine, was a gentleman named Harry Middleton. And Harry had been the the speechwriter for Lyndon Johnson for the past, for the last few years of Johnson's presidency. And then Harry came on to uh, Austin to actually uh, open the LBJ library. So he was a sort of venerable presence here in Austin and became a mentor to me. And he, when I asked him who I should be meeting in the Austin community when I arrived, immediately said, Mark Lawrence. So Mark became one of my first friends when I took on the post of LBJ Library prior to Mark's tenure. 
I got to know Mark a bit through his books, and this is a typical experience in the academic world where you feel like people a little bit by virtue of seeing their books in bookstores or picking them up and giving them a read. And I knew Mark's book about essentially about how presidents have spent their ex-presidencies, what they do with their lives after leaving the White House, a book called Second Acts, which is really terrific. And, and then, as Mark says, we met back in 2009. FYI, I bought Second Acts not long ago. I find that fascinating that so many of, and I also enjoyed, it was, I'm trying to remember the two authors. They wrote, I believe, for Time Magazine, and they wrote the book, The President's Club. Michael Duffy and Nancy Gibbs. Yeah. When we were at Time Magazine together, yeah. I would love to interview them because that's when people ask me, what what book would you recommend? That's always my first choice. Oh, thanks so much for that, uh, Robert. This is absolutely beautiful. Very ignominious start to the interview. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just say this. I haven't been asked that question since before I interviewed you. I have to say right back at at Mark Lawrence, it's it's funny because when Harry Middleton had suggested that we meet, I had devoured Mark's very concise history of the war in Vietnam. And it was the most valuable book that I read in understanding the Vietnam War and the uh, history of colonialism in Vietnam. So right back at Mark Lawrence for that. When I was in school, when I was in college, I had a history professor and he would always go up he would see Asian kids, and he, and he was in Japan at part of the occupation after World War II, fluent in Japanese. But if he found out that someone, so this is the early 90s, right? If one of these students was Vietnamese, the very next question he asked them every single time, do your parents speak French? Hmm. Uh-huh. And they all said yes. So the spread of yeah. colonialism, you think it's 1990, it's all over and done with? And yeah. No. It was still going yeah, on. Absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. yeah, no question. We have two of the world's leading experts on the American presidents and the American presidency. So let's start with an easy one. <laughs> In the history of government, what makes the American presidency so unique? Or is it, Mr. Lawrence? <laughs> I think at the beginnings of American history, there was a lot of interest in making the American presidency a truly distinct institution. There was a sense that there needed to be a chief executive in the United States, but you didn't want that chief executive to have too much power or it would start to resemble the old king and the, the monarchical system that Americans tried to break away from. So the challenge was to find that middle ground. And that's the roots of the, that's the roots of the American presidency. I think what's happened particularly in the last 75 years or so, is that the president has gathered more and more power and authority. And this is a significant departure, I think, from what the the founders that we all spend so much time talking about really had in mind. The presidency has evolved into something quite different from what it was at its inception, even though the seeds of that modern presidency were certainly there at the beginning. And I agree totally with what uh, Dr. Lawrence just said, Robert. I would just add to that uh... I don't think the founders imagined that America would emerge as the dominant world power either. They had no idea the influence that America as a nation would wield as a consequence, what the power that the person holding its highest office would wield uh, as well. It's obviously an office that has evolved over time, as has the nation itself. You mentioned a, a bit of a time span, Dr. Lawrence, and I immediately took a note. How has 
technology and the ability and the expectation of the president to speak for the country increase the power not only of the man occupying it, but the office? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a fantastic question. And I think technology has been not the only driver, but a key driver of the accumulation of power and influence in the, in the president. And part of that has to do with military technology, as military technology has developed and threats to the United States have become more and more instantaneous. It has sometimes been very difficult to imagine, you know, going to Congress, having a debate, getting a declaration of war, as is imagined in the Constitution. So increasingly, there's been a tendency to look to the president to make these snap decisions about, you know, the use of force, questions of, of war and peace. And also technology, in this case, I would point to the rapid, sometimes instantaneous flow of information has meant that there needs to be a single individual who can handle economic decisions, which have to be made in the snap of a finger as as well. So lots of reasons that the availability of information has led Americans to look to a single individual to, to make the big decisions. Mr. Updegrove, what do you think? Same thing. It's Television a- seems to control What's what's it called? The is it the Hawthorne effect? That if Sounds but right. merely being observed changes behavior, and now you have a oh. hundred million people, hundred and twenty million people watching the leader, quote unquote, of the free world on television. How has television and technology changed both the presidency and presidents? It's not just television. If you look back at our great politicians, they've always mastered the mediums of their times, right? You look back at Thomas Jefferson. He he had mastered the art of controlling partisan newspapers. You look at Abraham Lincoln, and Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln understood the power of photography. It was essentially in his 1860 campaign for president using this fledgling art of actually capturing the image of somebody. So that, again, instrumental in his campaign for the presidency. He also understood that the the power of the written word, we talk about the Gettysburg Address, but most people didn't hear in America at the time, did not hear uh, Abraham Lincoln deliver the Gettysburg Address, but they did read it in uh, newspapers throughout the country. So he understood the power of the written word at that time. You look at Franklin Roosevelt, and of course, he understood the power of radio, which was the dominant media of his time. Those famous fireside chats helped helped to keep us together as a nation during the depths of the Great Depression, of course, during World War II. I think JFK was, you and I talked about this before, Robert, on the podcast earlier, was really the dominant, or rather understood that television was the dominant media of his time and used it very effectively, as did Ronald Reagan. We saw what uh, Donald Trump did with Twitter during his tenure in the Oval Office. He continues to use social media very effectively. So I think it's not just television or social media. It's whatever the dominant medium is of the time. Politicians use it in order to circumvent the press to disseminate their message effectively to the American people and to the world. How did George Washington set the table for the 40 plus men who? came after him when we get into presidential rankings one of the reasons there's several reasons why washington's either one two a few years ago he was three behind franklin roosevelt and lincoln and we'll get into rankings here in a bit but how did george washington take something that only existed on paper and made it come to life dr lawrence 
Yeah. One of the things that's often said about George Washington is that he set all or many of the really important precedents with respect to the American presidency. And I think that's exactly right. He understood what all, all Americans, I think, understood at some level in that moment in the 1780s. This institution, the American presidency, was by design supposed to exist in that sort of middle ground between an all-powerful executive on the one hand and a weak figure who is subject to popular and congressional control on the other. So where George Washington wound up in that spectrum of possibilities between those two extremes was bound to set a lot of precedents. And I think one of the things, maybe the most important thing we would uh, give George Washington credit for was finding a, a healthy place on that continuum. He was deferential to Congress in certain arenas and also stood his ground and, and commanded some respect for the presidency at, at other times. And by the way, George Washington also did something that is perhaps the most important uh, precedent-setting act of all, which was to leave the presidency peacefully and to hand power in an orderly fashion to his successor. That process, of course, had never been done when George Washington left the presidency. So in this very important respect. He also deserves a lot of credit as the found the, the most important founder of the founding fathers, I guess you could say. He's the indispensable man. I, no question about it. And we talk about the Declaration of Independence as being a vitally important founding document written by written by Thomas Jefferson and more or less edited by Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. But the really indispensable man during those revolutionary times is George Washington. He, if you don't win the war against the English, you don't have a country, right? <laughs> and he's the one, the, the stalwart who made that happen. It's interesting, Robert, because the, the, the Constitution is very vague about the responsibilities of president and what it looks like, because those founding fathers knew that our first president would likely be George Washington, and they had trust that he would define the office for his predecessors, which, as Mark Lawrence just suggested, is exactly what he did. And I think that the most important precedent, and Mark really uh, put it well, is that George Washington becomes the American Cincinnatus. He mm -hmm. essentially relinquishes power willingly, setting the precedent for his successors to do likewise. After two terms in office, when George Washington could easily have won a third and gone on to be perhaps an American sovereign of sorts, an, an American a king, he decided instead to be a president. And, and that, that observance of the peaceful transfer of power, that willingness to step down is an incredibly important precedent and becomes, I think, the American ideal that, that is a hallmark of American democracy. Any chance someone other than Washington would have been the first president if he just flat out said, no, I'm not going to do it? I don't know if anyone else could have kept the country together. He was the one unifying figure in this country when there were still pretty pronounced sectional differences. Uh, and I think that had it not been for George Washington, there's no assurance that America would have continued as a, a reality. George Washington is the one president in the history of our nation who was bigger than the country itself. Dr. Lawrence? I think, honestly, Mark put it very nicely. He is the one figure without whom I think it's almost unimaginable to rerun the history of the 1780s and, uh, and 1790s. And he was the consensus 
pick, as, as we might say, in the 21st century for that job because he was that unifying figure. So um, it's very hard for me to get my head around some alternative history of that period that doesn't look very different because so much depended on this um, this single individual. John Adams, George Washington's vice president, succeeded him and succeeded him in 1796, the election. But in 1800, we had the first of what has turned out to be many close run, controversial, sort of fire breathing elections. And in that case, Thomas Jefferson eventually becomes president of the United States. How important to the presidency? And to the United States was the election of 1800 when things, I hate to use a 21st century term again, but when things finally got real. (laughs) Dr. Lawrence? I think it's really important. I I think that, um, you know, if the transition from uh, Washington to Adams was crucial in demonstrating that power could be handed peacefully from one administration to another, the election you're talking about is also crucial because it It suggested the possibility of handing power peacefully from one party to another. And for my money, some of the most interesting moments in American political history are exactly moments like that. 1952, 1953 is a date that stands out for me as a historian of the 20th century when you see another really important transition after so many years of democratic rule, right? The Republican Dwight Eisenhower steps in. What would be the attitude of the new administration toward what its predecessors had accomplished. That was a big question at that time. And the particular answers that Dwight Eisenhower offered uh, turned out to be hugely consequential for an awful lot that followed. 1800, 1952, there's others we could talk about that are um, you know, profoundly important moments. And I would add to that, that, that you go, going back to George Washington, Robert, George Washington didn't believe the country could withstand a two-party system. We only had one party when Washington was in office, and that was the, the Federalist Party. Everyone was a Federalist. And so when we became a two-party system, it, it, it might have been to the detriment of the future of the United States. But so that, cru- that, that election, which pits John Adams against Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, who was John Adams' vice president, it becomes a pretty important test for this fledgling nation. What do we do with the two-party system? Do you observe the peaceful transfer of power? And of course, that's what happened and of course, that in itself set a, a precedent. Is that perhaps, as we look back, the most underrated aspect of the presidency, the peaceful transition? When someone just says, hey, at noon on March 4th or at noon on January 20th, I'm out. You're in. <laughs> I think there's not a lot of precedent for that. And especially in in, in history of the last, I guess, going back to the Romans, or you just didn't have that sort of thing where someone just stepped away and said, all right, it's it's, it. The people have spoken. It's your turn. How underrated is the fact that we, that it happens and we just take it for granted. At least most of us do. We talked about Cincinnati. Cincinnati was the, the Roman general who famously laid down his sword and took uh, up his plow after having defeated a horde of barbarians who threatened ancient Rome. He was a great hero, and he could have gone on again to be some sort of major figure and instead went humbly back to his farm, as did uh, George Washington, perhaps not so humbly since he had slaves running Mount Vernon, uh, Mount Mount Vernon, rather. But look, 
it is, as I mentioned earlier, a hallmark of American democracy, but it's not something, Robert, that we should take for granted. And January 6th is a really good example of the fact that this is not just a, a, an endemic truth in American life. It's something that we have to appreciate and observe as, as a generation of Americans handing a tradition off, off to the, the next generation. Um, yes, it's vitally important to what, uh, what, what America is but not something that that we should uh, take for granted and uh, something that we should celebrate because there are a number of nations that have not done that successfully throughout their histories. Dr. Lawrence? These transitions were tremendously important at the beginning of the country for reasons that we've talked about. They're also, I think, very important. They're very laden with symbolism and the consequences of those moments are terribly important in the last, say, 50 or 75 years of American history, precisely because the president has accumulated so much power and uh, has become synonymous almost with the country as a whole. But it's worth remembering that it was not always so for long periods of American history, essentially the middle part. The presidency at many points, lost some of, of that sense of being the most important institution in American life, the institution that almost without question sat at the very pinnacle of power. And so I'm not saying that transitions weren't important in the, the 1840s or the 1870s or the 1880s, but I think at that time there was a different balance. Maybe one could say a healthier balance between what ordinary people expected of the president and what they expected of Congress or of their state governments and so forth. We can talk as we move forward about the consequences of attaching so much weight to the presidency. And one of the consequences of that, I think, is that these inauguration, right, the country almost comes to a standstill still. We all watch it on television. And again, I'm not saying it wasn't somewhat significant in earlier eras, but I think we've allowed as a society the presidency to become all-consuming and the most important institution in American political life. Well, let's but stay Martin, with that I real quick because I want to ask you both the same question. Yeah. How much of what you just said, Dr. Lawrence, how much of that has to do with the football with the I, ability of the president the, of the yeah. United States to obliterate the entire world. Yeah. And he has the power to do it. I don't think it, it, it's certainly not the only explanation, but as I mentioned before, in response to your question about technology, I think changing military technologies, especially the advent of nuclear weapons really had a profound effect in empowering the president and the presidency perhaps for very good reasons, right? We really do need someone who sits at the top of the political system who has control over the most deadly weapons. There isn't always going to be an opportunity to consult with Congress and have all the due deliberation that we might ideally want in connection with the questions of war and peace. I would just add to that. I'm just going to want to go back to, to something that Mark Lawrence said about, about the, 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 our, our inaugurations and how we watch so carefully when there is a transfer of power from one president to another. But I think those are very important occasions because they're a manifestation. They're the embodiment of that, these democratic principles that we were talking about. And throughout our history, I think there have only been three times when uh, a president hasn't been at an inauguration to see his successor be sworn into office. That's a symbol, not only to Americans, but to the world that we have this peaceful transfer of power. And I think those occasions serve 
as evidence that we 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 uh, not only uh, talk the talk of democracy, but we walk the walk. Uh, the, I think the, the the first occasion where a president didn't attend the inauguration of a successor was John Adams. John Adams mm-hmm. skipped town in the early morning hours of March 4th, uh, 1801. And then the, the most recent is, of course, Donald Trump, who refused to acknowledge the uh, the results of a free and fair election that essentially made him the loser the, uh, of that contest. So, but I, again, I, I think that shows the world that we are uh, that we are uh, living up to our democratic ideals. Those are symbols of what we stand for. And President Trump somehow blames it on my former boss, Mike Pence, which is when I haven't talked to you about this, but the former vice president is coming on this podcast. And the his- historical part of that is going to be very important to me to ask him as he, he stood there. And he had different paths, according to several people, but but Mike Pence only has one path, that's for sure. Not only do the presidents, the, the former presidents stand there, but often the defeated candidate is there. Nixon and Kennedy, Humphrey and Nixon, that the vice president who's sitting runs, loses to another candidate. And he, and, or I guess Hillary Clinton, she wasn't vice president, but she was there. Yeah. You ever think about what's going, do you ever? Or have a chance, you guys have talked to presidents and prominent figures, what's going through their mind as they watch someone else take the oath of office? Dr. Lawrence? I could only speculate, but I've got to imagine it is a really complicated blend of relief no longer to have those responsibilities, <laughs> especially if someone is emerging from eight years in office and has really seen the whole thing through. Um and on the other hand, a, a bit of uh, regret about losing all of that power and influence that has to be intoxicating while you're the person in the in in the Oval Office. But of course, it varies from from person to person who's been through that experience. But it's got to be some mix of those two ingredients. It's certainly a test of character. I've interviewed three presidents who have lost an election and have gone up to Capitol Hill to see the uh, the person who beat them. Uh, be sworn into office and take their job, essentially. Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and George Herbert Walker Bush. And it speaks to the grace of all those men that they handled it as they did. And I think George Herbert Walker Bush is a great example uh, of somebody who handled it with with true class and and grace. There had been a, uh, a, a tradition that was put into place by Ronald, what has become a tradition put into place by Ronald Reagan when he left his chosen successor, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, a letter after leaving the Oval Office, the, a letter that George Bush would receive when he after he became president and went into to the Oval Office for the first time. But it had never been the case that a, an outgoing president who was defeated by his successor left a note until George Herbert Walker Bush did so for Bill Clinton. And it's this marvelous note that says, essentially, when you receive this letter, you'll be our president. I'm rooting hard for you. And we want you to succeed. And please let me what I know what I can do to help you succeed in the role. And that's an amazingly, I would like to think, American moment mm. where you know that while you have been defeated, while your political career has been ended by your successor, you still root for him because he's your president now. 
And it also is a, such a reflection of the character of George Herbert Walker Bush. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests today are Mark Updegrove. He is the president and CEO of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Foundation. He serves also as a presidential historian for ABC News. Dr. Mark Lawrence is the director of the LBJ Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. We were discussing some important elections, and I just got finished reading a a book about Woodrow Wilson, who seems particularly loathsome. Sorry if you guys (laughs) are fans, but anyway, how let's go to one that's not often discussed. The election of 1916, Wilson's running for a second term. He's running against Charles Evans Hughes. Is that the Republican? Mm. No. I think that's right. It's an extraordinarily close election. It came to be posited that Hughes lost because he he didn't shake hands with Hiram Johnson, who was a very powerful progressive (laughs) senator from California. Uh, That shortly after the election in which Wilson ran that he kept us out of war about a 33 days after he <laughs> gets inaugurated in 1917, <laughs> the United States declares war on Imperial Germany. Is that a seminal election that doesn't get discussed enough? And if I haven't chosen a good one, please give me yours, Dr. Lawrence. That's interesting. That, that wouldn't necessarily be where I would go if you asked me what's, what's the best example of a truly seminal election. But it is a fascinating one. And it's interesting to rerun in our heads the, the history of the United States between 1916 and 1920 with a President Evans instead of uh, President Hughes, excuse me, instead of a President Wilson. And the Republicans certainly had different ideas about how the United States should exert its power internationally, what should be the institutions of collective security that might come out of such a war. I think that uh, American belligerence in the First World War probably would have occurred at any rate, but the settlement might well have looked quite different. I think Wilson's biggest impact was to bring with him in, into the presidency or to, into the, the second term a set of ideas about how the world order needed to be restructured. And that really does have tremendous consequences for how the peace settle, settlement plays out and really how international affairs plays out for the next 20 or 30 years there thereafter. If you want to talk about really consequential elections, I think 1896, which uh, leads the United States in the direction of becoming an imperial power, for example, is one that I might point to. 1920 is not a close election, but a consequential election in the sense that the, the Republican Party comes back into the White House and a particular version of the Republican Party that essentially rejects the progressive era that Teddy Roosevelt and, and others had led in the earlier part of the century. So that signals the emergence of a very different Republican Party from the one that had been you know, competing very successfully for the presidency in recent years. Yeah, I would agree. I think there are many. 1824, the election that goes to John Quincy Adams because Stolen. of the compromise. Stolen. Stolen. <laughs> there you go. Stolen there you go. <laughs> from my man. And Andrew Jackson. There you go. And that's 1976, <laughs> the, the election that went to Rutherford B. Hayes because of a compromise. And you have 
the 2000 election between Al Gore and George W. Bush with the controversial recount in Florida. And of course, 2020, which you just talked about, and the vital role that Mike Pence played in upholding the Constitution, ensuring that there was indeed a peaceful transfer of power. So there are a number of very key and perilous, in some cases, elections that help to define our history, Robert. You mentioned 1876. I'm currently reading a book on the resurgence of the Klan because, unfortunately, the the, the post-World War I resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan had much of its foundation here in Indiana and with a particular Klansman named D.C. Stevenson, whose house was three blocks from mine, where I grew up on University Avenue in Irvington, and the woman he murdered lived on the same block as I did. So the book was sent to me for a podcast interview. It's very good. Uh, Timothy Egan is the author. Uh, But you mentioned 1876, Mark. Is there a more tragic election than 76, given what followed immediately afterward with regard to Reconstruction, Mm. Jim Crow South Mm -hmm. and everything? Yeah, essentially the compromise ensured that there would be there would no longer be uh, Union troops in the in the southern states, ensuring that uh, that there wasn't terror and there wasn't Jim Crow uh, tactics, segregationist tactics. Yeah, you're right. That sets sets us back significantly. The election of 1876. I, I would say that that changes the course of American history. It sets us back for at least two two generations, probably after the Civil War and the Confederate cause was vanquished by Union soldiers. That frequently throughout history, Robert, we take a giant leap forward and then we get pushed back a couple of steps before taking another leap forward. Mm-hmm. That's certainly the case for the uh, the issue of race, which so defines America at its best and its very worst. Dr. Lawrence, do you are you, do you want to sign on to my 1876 being the most tragic election <laughs> outcome where pressure uh, mark <laughs> Rutherford B. Hayes beats Samuel Tilden, even though I think Tilden had more yeah. did Tilden have more popular votes and more electoral votes, yeah. but it went into the U.S. House and yeah. They had a bunch of ballots and they couldn't figure it out. And then Hayes ended up winning. But he had promised to remove the troops from the South that were enforcing the Reconstruction laws. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, want to weigh in on that or give us your own? Sure. Essentially, I agree. This is a very consequential election. But let me take a slightly different approach to this question by suggesting that I think the, the way the 1876 election gets talked about is a good example of how Americans exaggerate the importance of the presidency and the outcomes of specific elections. Because I think if you take a deeper cut at American society in 1876, you can see which way the wind is blowing, right? The idea that reconstruction and some sort of progressive vision of the the remaking of politics in the South was still a viable project in 1876, I think is really problematic. So the the outcome of the presidential race reflects reality, uh, as unfortunately, I think we might agree, um, it was evolving. A friend of Mark's and mine, we interviewed her on a podcast a few months ago, suggested that presidential elections, I love the way she put it, presidential elections are a lagging indicator of social change in the United States. And I think that's right. And, And 1876 is a good example. That election captures the fact that Americans, tragically perhaps, had really moved on 
from the controversies of Reconstruction. And we're ready to cut a deal, the, the type of cynical deal, we might say, with the benefit of hindsight that Tilden and Hayes and their allies. Friedman fatigue. You read yeah. it all the time how they're like, OK, look, yeah. I just I got other things to worry about now. I can't worry about that anymore. Yeah. It's an old way of thinking about the late 19th century that the country was re reunified and brought back together after the Civil War on the backs of African Americans whose interests were totally disregarded as parties and and regions came back together and found some middle ground. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guests today are Mark Updegrove and Mark Lawrence, good friends and prominent presidential historians and commentators and podcasters, I should say. Speaking of our, dominating our new technology, there you go. <laughs> yeah, All right, I'm going to ask you this. Ground, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask you this question, Dr. Lawrence, because I'm going to yeah. I'm going to give Mark Updegrove time to process this question and get Uh-oh. over and take his glycerin pills. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> I, I get no time. Ta- I get no time to prepare. Go for it. No, because this is <laughs> you have this is like a flyer for you. You can say whatever you want. Would the history of the modern United States be better, however you define better, if Richard Nixon had won in 1960? Wow. No, I I don't think so. I think that the Kennedy presidency had a lot of problems. I think that the fact that John F. Kennedy won the White House by such a small margin really boxed him in politically. He was he faced all kinds of problems in Congress with getting any kind of domestic pro- approved. And yet, I think we should all be happy with the benefit of hindsight that John F. Kennedy became president because of his behavior in the realm of foreign affairs. And I think his record in international affairs is largely misunderstood because it was, after all, John F. Kennedy who presided over a pretty significant buildup of American military power, who spoke in terms of pay- any price. There's a lot of really hawkish, belligerent rhetoric there. But if you look carefully at what John F. Kennedy actually did, as opposed to what he said, he was a remarkably cautious president who was wary of the uses of force. And this really mattered in the early 1960s as the world passed through very dangerous moments, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Berlin Crisis, and so forth. And it really mattered to have a president of John F. Kennedy's disposition, I think, in in the White House. Have, have, have you resuscitated? <laughs> I've taken my glycerin pills. Yes, I'm ready for the. I'm ready for you, the I read your book, Incomparable Grace. It's a terrific. It it left me a much bigger fan of JFK than before. I'm going to preview a question I'm going to ask you in a few minutes because it seemed to me John F. Kennedy got all the big things right. Well, let me tell you that I went to the pro- I came to the project of writing about John F. Kennedy, a little skeptical. I, I listen, I'm a fan of John F. Kennedy, and it's hard not to be captured and inspired by his soaring rhetoric. It's it's marvelous to watch those speeches. And 
know that they were the, the impact that they had. But I will tell you when thinking about uh, John F. Kennedy in the realm of foreign policy in particular, Mark Lawrence has been a, a mentor of sorts. Mark had studied this pretty uh, intensively through the work that he had done. And I spent a lot of time with him, peppering him with questions about this. And I came to the same conclusion based on what I heard from Mark and others and read in my own research that you, Mark put his, really nailed it with it, John F. Kennedy's disposition. He handled these incredibly dangerous moments, perilous moments, not only in the history of the United States, but of the world with equanimity and and grace and and calm. And I think that made all the difference, particularly as it related to the most dangerous moment in humankind, which in my view, which is the Cuban Missile Crisis. The question I think is, could, could be, if we're going down this road of hypotheticals, if Richard Nixon had become president, would Nikita Khrushchev have been emboldened such that he would have shipped arms and, and troops to Cuba? I, I don't know the answer to that. But we know that he did, partly because of Khrushchev's impression of Kennedy as being callow and weak. And we know that Kennedy rose to that moment. And Kennedy admitted when it came to the Vienna conference, they said he the old man beat the hell out of me or something. I mean, he clearly knew that he had he needed to do better than he had performed in Vienna. Whereas with Nixon, you had the kitchen debate where they're sticking he's sticking his fingers in the chest of Nikita Khrushchev. So I just think that everything that comes after it, the assassination, Vietnam, the Great Society, Watergate, everything, that 1860, almost every prominent historian says it's one of the most crucial elections in history. But to me, of, of all the ones where you could do a counterfactual, that's in the top two or three, 1860, obviously, as well. Um, oh. I said just a few minutes ago the, that I thought that John F. Kennedy got the big things right. I, I absolutely believe that. We tend to lionize the presidents who get the big things right. Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, I would add Ronald Reagan, because not only do they make the right decisions, but they articulate their decisions so well. Would you, besides them, if we all agree on them, are there one or two others that you think this person really got it right? And when it came down to explaining why he did what he did, he also got that right in a way that we still remember. Mr. Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence. The president I would put into the conversation is Dwight Eisenhower. I think the presidents we remember most fondly and the ones we tend to consider to have been most successful are the ones that really meshed with their moment in time. And I think that Dwight Eisenhower is a great example of someone who really dwell with the dominant social and cultural attitudes of that moment. And he spoke in ways that really resonated with the American public. And he behaved, as we've come to learn, as historians have had more access to the record, I think, in ways that reflected a real, a really sophisticated approach to both domestic and foreign policy. And there's something else I think that we can learn from Dwight Eisenhower. He was, and I think this is really unique among American presidents since FDR, he was a modest person, which I, by which I don't mean he was personally modest, although he may have been, but he exuded a sense of modesty about what the president should be 
could be, it, the presidency's role in American life. And I think that's been lost. Now Americans expect their presidents to be everything all the time. The pressure that we put on presidents is just astonishing. And I think that's a result of very fundamental changes that came about as a consequence of the New Deal and the Depression. But Eisenhower is this interesting moment where the clock gets turned back a little bit. And I think there's something very important for us to recover from this president who really had a very intimate appeal to lots and lots of Americans and and yet presided in a very effective way over some dangerous times. I love William Hitchcock's book on yeah. Eisenhower. It's terrific. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready to interview his wife because she wrote a book on Longstreet, which I exactly. read a few months ago, and I'm going to beg her to ask him to come on. It's terrific. Other than Washington, did anyone, or maybe even more than Washington, did anyone come to the presidency and all its power after holding such a powerful office as a five-star general? Eisenhower became president, which is, let's say it's the most powerful office in the world. But before that, it wasn't, if we don't count president of Columbia University in its power, but before that, He's a pretty powerful guy. So I wonder how much of a change was it for him to go from Army Chief of Staff, five-star general, to president? And maybe that's why he had that modesty. I think that's part of it. Yeah. And that would be, by the way, he'd be on my list, at the top of my list, too, for the very reasons that Mark just suggested. But it's interesting, if you, we were just talking about Washington and, and all the power that that he wielded, and yet he went, uh, he treated the the office of the, the presidency with great modesty. Um uh, understanding the burdens of power, I think, helped Washington um, become the sort of American Cincinnatus. And it's the same is true with Eisenhower. I think I would add to that list Harry Truman. I don't think he's the great figure that McCullough sometimes mm -hmm. presents in his epic biography, that very revisionist Truman the biography that the McCullough published in the early 1990s. But he's another example of somebody who got the big things right. I think you're you're alluding to the presidential greats here, mm -hmm. Robert. But I think, although he got one thing colossally wrong, I would put Lyndon Johnson in, in the top quarter of all presidents because of this, the huge advances of the great society, particularly in the area of of race and civil rights. But in addition to that, to an open a more open immigration. A policy that changes the the face and soul of America in so many respects. Is there anyone else? I'm sitting here talking with the two. I wouldn't get a guess. You're you, Carol Dalek. You two, Carol and Dalek, are the world's biggest authorities on LBJ, other than his kids. Has any other president in your mind gotten something so terrifically right and another thing so terrifically wrong? during his term or terms is lyndon johnson the one president who gets an a plus in english and an f in reading like how like possible is there any i can't think of anyone else off the top of my head who did really spectacularly on one thing changed the direction of the entire country and then just failed on another thing equally big those two i'm sorry sorry mark please those things are so consequential. They're so mad. They're there. They're presidents right. who get things right and wrong. Of course, we all do, right? right? We are humans with our own foibles and our own flaws. But uh, I, those things are so consequential 
that the advances of the great society are so mammoth. They, to my mind, they create the foundation for modern America. And yet you, you also have this war in Vietnam where we would see the loss of 68,000 troops. Those are pretty big things. Had Franklin Roosevelt lost World War II, then he would have gotten something big really wrong. And mm-hmm. another big thing, getting us through the Great Depression really right. But you, you can look at a lot of presidents who did things that were so, some right and some wrong. They just weren't quite as consequential. Mark, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no problem whatsoever. I think a good an answer to your question depends, of course, on political judgments about what we consider right, what we consider wrong. But I can think pretty quickly of other presidents who, at least in the judgment of many Americans, actually fall into that same category with Johnson of getting one one or more things really spot on and, and one or more things really disastrously wrong. Andrew Jackson, he would be widely condemned, it seems to me, for Indian removal and attitudes towards Black Americans and so forth and so on. And yet, no one did more in the early decades of American history to democratize the nation. And I think we would probably all agree that's that was a pretty good thing. Woodrow Wilson, obviously, he's come in for some tough times reputationally in recent times. And yet, Wilsonian principles as applied to international affairs are by and large principles that many Americans would get behind. Richard Nixon opened the country to China, mm, yeah. which I think many of us would see as a major step forward, and yet also is the president of Watergate. Reagan managed the end of the Cold War in a really skillful way, many would say, and yet, and here's a political judgment, many would say on the domestic side, he really ushered in a period of a very harsh social policy with enormous human consequences. Jimmy Carter got human rights on the agenda in a very effective way, yet he was a pretty catastrophic president. I think most people would agree in lots of other ways. So it's an interesting pattern. And LBJ mm-hmm. is a, a maybe the best, most you know, sort of starkest example, but there are others, I think, as well. We have a few more minutes with Dr. Mark Lawrence and Mark Updegrove. We're talking American presidents and the American presidency. Which American president? for good to to rise or to fall is due for a reassessment dr lawrence oh wow i was afraid you'd mm. come to me first mm. oh is that man. what your students um, say is that there is no president since franklin roosevelt i think who needs a reassessment because all of them have gotten so much attention in, in recent times, unsurprisingly, historians have flocked to all of these presidents and biographers as well. So I think even if uh, historians haven't reached definitive judgments, the nature of the debate, I think, is pretty clear. And those debates are ongoing at a pretty high level. So I think you need to go backward in time to really find presidents who might have something to teach us about our own era. And I think it's for this reason that some presidents from the Gilded Age, James Garfield, Grover Cleveland, to name just two that Mark and I have been reading about recently, unsurprisingly, are are getting a second look because in the hands of skilled biographers, they have something to tell us about our moment. But to come directly to your question, here's one that I'll put out there. I might have a different answer if I thought about it for a little bit longer, but Andrew Johnson, And I'm not saying that he's looking for any sort of uh, reappraisal that might lead historical judgments in a more positive direction, but I think that period is so relevant to our own era that looking again at that presidency, the controversies of Reconstruction may well help to shed a little bit of light on our own era where uh, race and the, the relationship between states and the federal government and so forth is so much in play. 
I, I would say, first of all, Robert, thank you for giving these questions first to Mark. <laughs> I don't know if it's an alphabetical thing or he's a doctor and I'm a mister. I don't know what it is, but I'm grateful because it gives me a little more time to think about it. I would say uh, uh, I would disagree ever so slightly. I, I agree with Mark. I think that the modern presidents are so scrutinized, but I'm also amazed at how much we get wrong in real time. And that when we have the the luxury of looking back after a generation or two, we can see presidents more dispassionately. The one I think that is due for at least a relook, if not a major reevaluation, is Bill Clinton. I think Bill Clinton is has been a a political lightning rod in recent years, both the Clintons, both both Bill and Hillary Clinton. And so there there isn't a great deal of dispassion uh, held toward Bill Clinton. But I think if you look back at that administration, it's interesting. I mean, this is a guy who is the first Democrat to win two consecutive terms since Franklin Roosevelt and leaves the presidency despite the scandals of his administration, in particular Monica Lewinsky, with an approval rating of 66%. And is the first one to balance the budget since LBJ did it in 1968. It's a in in many ways worth reevaluating his presidency. I think the one downside of his presidency is it's a relatively inconsequential era. We talked about consequence earlier. In between the post Cold War era, yeah, exactly post Cold War and pre 9/11. We it's in between the fall of the Berlin Wall and the the fall of the the Twin Towers. So that's one of the reasons he'll never climb up to to the top echelon, the pantheon of presidents. But I think it will be seen in history that he was a very good and competent president who worked the middle ground in order to get things done, important things done for the times. Certainly ridiculously intelligent and a huge history nut, which always is a big plus. So let me ask the same question in a different way. Which president is beyond a reassessment? Like, if you try to convince me Abraham Lincoln didn't do all these wonderful things, like you're wasting your time. So are, are there <laughs> presidents who are like, we're going to write biographies of them and we may find new information, but they're set. Who would you say is beyond that? And we'll start with Dr. Lawrence. <laughs> 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 Dr. Lawrence, that question was for you. Cause I know you want to reevaluate. Here I have a very simple answer. None of them. I mean, I, I wouldn't be a card carrying historian if I thought anything was beyond reinterpretation, new discoveries, but I, I take your point. So I'll answer your question in relative terms, which ones do we, if not fully understand, then at least we fully understand what the space for debate is and what the key questions are. And unsurprising, I think if you go further back in time, you find people who might fall more into that category. And I think George Washington might be the most obvious example. That said, there was a really clever biography of him called You Never Forget Your First, written by a really creative historian just a couple of years ago, that told me lots of new things about George Washington and showed that even, you know, the the man of, of more than 200 years ago can be looked at in fresh ways. But I do think Washington probably is the best answer I would offer to that. And I think, you know, it's so important to have new works of history done, even though even though you're going back to, to trodden ground like Abraham Lincoln. I mean, look at how many books have been written about Abraham Lincoln and that Doris Kearns Goodwin comes out with her book some years back and, and it changes our view of Lincoln. So you, you have to continue to evaluate presidents because our times change. 
the facts may not change of a president's tenure. And there might not be a lot of primary source documents to go back to that haven't been unearthed to this point. But because our times change, because we look at things differently, we have to reassess the great figures in history, whether they be presidents or, or, or other figures. I would say just to I'm not sure I would add to the to the good list. George Washington and and Abraham Lincoln are just they're mammoths, and it, it's hard to find any cracks in the armor to a certain degree. But they were human beings, and they did, as I mentioned earlier, like any human being, have flaws and and foibles. But history is so important because it, it shows us essentially who we are, and and if you don't evaluate history, you, you, you really don't understand where we're going from here. How has the advent of very prominent, award-winning female historians changed the study of the presidency? Or has it? Hmm. You led me right to it with your Doris Kearns Goodwin. <laughs> sure. I would say the one of the things that Mark and I have talked about is I would love to see greater diversity in the ranks of presidential historians. I'd love to see great African-Americans, whether they be men or women, do presidential biographies. It's a it's a crowded field, but most of those who are in the field look like Mark and me. And I, I would love to see greater diversity throughout the ranks of historians. Yeah, I think there are two schools of thought on that. One is to suggest that if the more women who are writing about presidents, the more apt they are to see different things, to mm -hmm. focus perhaps on the women in the lives of the presidents. And so someone like Alexis Coe, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, who wrote about George Washington, does exactly that. And she prides herself in the introduction of that book on taking that approach and discovering things that, in her view, I think probably rightly, have eluded male historians who are looking for different things in part because of who they are. I think there are others uh, out there who might say, well, it really doesn't matter, right? Good history is good history. And the men should have been paying attention to the women and, and vice versa for a long time. Good history is one that simply gets it right and asks the interesting questions. It's a fascinating debate. And I think we are probably healthiest in the world of American biography writing and his, historical scholarship if we have people who take both points of view and then we get the benefits of, of both approaches. Presidential rankings, are they worth anything? Dr. <laughs> Dr. Lawrence, are they... I, maybe you all yeah. have participated in that exercise, but is it just, it's just yeah. a fun thing to do? Do they, do they impact scholarship or historical reputation? Jackson was always in the top 10. Now he's tumbled. Wilson was in the top 10. Now he's tumbled. <laughs> do yeah. these matter? These rankings matter? My short answer is no. I think they're silly, but I think they sometimes can perform a useful service by showing us very broadly whose stock is rising and falling. They can sometimes be handy mechanisms to make a historical point by pointing to the fact that Harry Truman's stock has fallen this far, but let's take another look at Harry Truman. Maybe he's not so bad after all. So it can be a useful device, I think, for a historian or biographer to call attention to their subject. But I would say, by and large, these these rankings are, are silly and frankly misleading because they reflect an era, I think, when, and this goes back to something I was trying to say before, that the presidency is 
mm. deserving of this special status in how we understand leadership or how we understand our history. It's no surprise that when you do these studies, these polls, very recent presidents are almost always at the top. And that reflects, one, that we're, we're familiar with them, but also that we expect so much more of presidents. And maybe Grover Cleveland or James Garfield deserves to be at the top because they approached the office with humility. They didn't believe they were entitled to two terms and back and uh, left the presidency willingly. They saw themselves as a servant to the American people and didn't take advantage of every opportunity to act boldly on the global stage or even on the domestic stage. I think we should allow some space. If we're going to do these rankings, we should be open to the fact that sometimes it's the presidents who don't do things who actually deserve our praise and not the ones who accomplish the great things. Often trying to accomplish great things led presidents into real difficulties. <laughs> I would take a slide. I do participate in this. I'm one of those graders, if you will, who participates in the presidential rankings. And I, I agree. I think they're, to some degree, they're frivolous and they can be misleading, but they're inevitable, right? For It's like sitting in the bar and debating on who was the better center fielder, Mantle or Mays. These are great sure. debates to have, and they're going to happen whether we like them or not. So I, I think it's inevitable that we do them. I would say, I would just counter what Mark said a moment ago and say that it, gets, it goes back to consequence. And so many of those late uh, 19th century presidents were leading in a time of little consequence in the grand scheme of things. Abraham Lincoln is in the pantheon because he was at a time when there was an exist. He was a president at a time when we were undergoing an existential crisis, and his leadership made a profound difference in the outcome. We wouldn't have a nation today, but for the leadership, in my opinion, of Abraham Lincoln. Obviously, there were other influences, but it was Lincoln who, through his resolve, ensured that the Union did not dissolve during the course of his presidency. So uh, that's the, one of the reasons that 20th century presidents tend to be at that list. It's partly because there's greater study, and we who are doing the rankings know them better than we might those 19th century presidents. But it's also because the times are more consequential, and America's position in the world is much greater than it was at a certain point in time. Uh, so I, I, I'd say that uh, we not we might not like those rankings, but they're an inevitability, and uh, they would happen whether we wanted them to, to or not. Mark and Mark have already answered the five questions when they came on the podcast <laughs> the first time. So I had to try to figure out some way to end this podcast on a high note, just like George Costanza would prefer. <laughs> if you were given the power to name four presidents for the next Mount Rushmore, whom would you name <laughs> Dr. Lawrence? Who aren't already on there. Correct. Okay. Wow. So let me explain my criteria, first of all. I'm going to go with consequential as the qualification rather than greatness or someone who's in line with my own political views. People who really turned American history in ways that make them terribly important to the arc of American history. Franklin Roosevelt, for sure. And 
F and, and Reagan, I think from recent times, undeniably, these are consequential historians who in some ways are in opposition to each other. And how interesting to get them both up there on the cliff, right? To encourage Americans to try to understand why both visions could possibly be great. <laughs> I would put Dwight Eisenhower up there. Here I am privileging the 20th century, which I just criticized people for doing. Um, <laughs> for some of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, I think he's a model of a humble, more modest vision of the presidency, which should also very much be part of how we think about the institution. I think we've gotten ourselves into real trouble by expecting that presidents are superheroes who can do everything all the time. And then it feels like I should have someone from the uh, the 19th century. Lincoln's out of the picture here because he's on the original. So who am I going to go with? I'm going to say that, hey, John Adams should be up there. He doesn't get much respect. Mm. And I think he is great, not for his presidency per se, as anyone who's seen Hamilton will know, but because of his importance to American history more broadly, and some of the reasons we've touched on here. Mr. Updegrove? Yeah, I, I would say if you wanted a, a 19th century president, James Madison, the, the mm. author of the Constitution being up there with the author of the Declaration of Independence. He would, he's somebody I would certainly lobby for. But I think they got it right with Mount Rushmore and the, the presidents they put up. So I would say that gives me permission to start the clock after uh, 1909, after TR leaves <laughs> the, the office. But Madison, you could make a big case for Madison. By the way, Madison is somebody who's due some sort of major biographical treatment at some point. There, there hasn't been a great book on Madison in some time. I would agree indisputably with Mark on FDR. FDR is the first person you chisel in that rock as the, the fifth president. And his chin would look great on the, in granite. I mean, Roosevelt, the jaw just would just see. look. Right. I'm pretty sure it was made of rock anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he get the cigarette in there somehow. <laughs> Without question, Eisenhower deserves a place there too for reasons that Mark said. But you know, also one of the reasons you put Jefferson up there is because he's the, the author of the Declaration. I said, but made a case for Madison for the same reasons. Uh, but Eisenhower and his role in World War II, how do you not put Eisenhower up there in addition to a very underrated and a very important presidency for a variety of reasons. So those two, I would agree with Ronald Reagan. I would reluctantly put up there. I think Ronald Reagan is, we, we talked about people who got things wrong. And one of the things that is not talked about with Ronald Reagan is he had three objectives coming into the, the presidency, which he very wisely limited his priorities and, and really delved into them when he was president. One was a decisive victory in the Cold War against the Soviet Union and a change in the paradigm in which we looked at the Cold War. And you have to give Reagan some credit for that. He didn't win the Cold War by any means, although he gets credit for it. But that change in the way that we looked at our relationship with the Soviet Union helps to see a decisive outcome in the Cold War. It, it helps. It, it's not the sole reason. Second is he wanted to boost the morale of the country, and he certainly did that. He had himself believing in us again. And in the same way that John Kennedy, through that soaring rhetoric, had ourselves believing in ourselves in the beginning of the 1960s. But he also promised to limit government, right, to decrease the size of government. Of course, government uh, expanded significantly during the Reagan presidency. But for the reasons I mentioned earlier, that the positive, the up the, the Reagan administration and the way he changed politics 
I would probably put Reagan in rock as well. And the, the last one, it's a toss up. You could make a case for uh, Harry Truman. You could make a case for John F. Kennedy, and you could certainly make a case for LBJ. So I would want a little more time to consider who that last president <laughs> we chiseled and rocked would be. Before I ask the last question, I just want to note that Professor Lawrence in his bookshelf behind him has a copy of the book, The Peacemaker. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. book about Ronald Reagan and the Cold War. And the author of that book came on the podcast. It's terrific about how Ronald Reagan won the Cold War single-handedly with no one else's help, no matter what. Mark. <laughs> Let's do last question. And Mr. Lawrence, Dr. Lawrence, we'll start with you again. Give me your bizarro Mount Rushmore. My bizarro. Wow. Okay. You had to choose the four worst oh. to enshrine in, in some sort of muck somewhere. Yeah. Wow. I think that James Buchanan is often among presidents held most responsible for failing to head off the Civil War, although I'm quite certain he should share that responsibility with uh, other presidents of that era. But I think there would be wide agreement he probably belongs up there. I think that I would probably put Warren Harding up there, though I understand he is getting some reappraisal and there are people who see things to like there. He was a combination of corrupt and uh, a man who prided himself on doing little to the point of nothing (laughs) as his his political innovations so that we could uh, pretty much see him in, in a pretty dim way historically. I think that Andrew Johnson for the failures of Reconstruction, probably would belong there. Though I think he, as I mentioned earlier, I think he's an absolutely fascinating individual. And then, oh man, I it, it, here it feels like I should have someone more recent. And and I'm I'm going to say I'm going to say I'm not going to say Richard Nixon because I think that there is an awful lot to. Mm-hmm pause over in his record and see in a positive light, though the negative has certainly outweighed the positive, deservedly so, in his reputation. Is it too Um, early to say Trump? Obviously, we're not including Biden because he's not finished yet, but is it too early to put Trump on your bizarro Mount Rushmore? I I think it is. I, I really think it is. I might go with Jimmy Carter or Gerald Ford instead, in all honesty. But with the thing about uh, Trump, I'll just point out really quickly here is that though he is widely regarded as a off-the-wall bizarro figure who doesn't fit in many ways in the long flow of American history as this outlier and four times indicted iconoclast. I I think what historians might see as we move forward is that we may not like him any better, but we're going to start to see that this was an exceptionally effective president when you talk about what he was able to achieve in terms of deregulation, court appointments, changing the tone of American politics, not creating a new uh, political coalition. I think that predated him, but really solidifying it. And um, firing up the many key components of a winning Republican coalition that's existed for some time. So I think we should be careful in perhaps being super critical of him for demeanor, not not uh, ruling out the possibility that in ways we've yet to appreciate, this was a, a, a quite effective president. Mark Updegrove, your bizarro. 
<laughs> you know, some of the same names. I would put Buchanan, uh, Pierce, and Andrew Johnson in the first three slots. And I would, uh, again, disagree respectfully with my esteemed friend and colleague, Dr. Lawrence, and say that Donald Trump is the last person on that list uh, with respect to uh, your audience members who may be Trump supporters. And I think, but there's one reason. I don't disagree with what Mark just said about the effectiveness of his presidency. He did get things done. Some of the, the Supreme Court makeup has changed exactly. through sheer luck. That's attrition. And the the Federal Society dictated a number of candidates uh, that he might appoint, and they have upheld sort of conservative principles. And But that's a lot of that is is just dumb luck, attrition in the court. I would put him there without question because he trampled on the Constitution. And we started this conversation with the importance of the peaceful transfer of power. And he is the one president in the history of our country who has defied that, uh, not only by trying to manipulate uh, election results, but by perpetrating the, the notion that the election was stolen from him. That has helped uh, to erode democracy to a certain uh, degree and has uh, put it in peril. And you talked about not, we talked about not taking those principles for granted. This has shown that the Trump presidency has shown us that we have to be vigilant, that we have to recognize what democratic ideals are and look like. And Donald Trump openly thumbed his nose at those very ideals. So for that reason, I would say he he is the fourth in that quartet of presidents that I would add in the bizarro. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. The date of this recording just happens to be August 30th, 2023, and what would have been his 105th birthday. Our guests have been Mark Updegrove, a presidential historian. He's president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation and serves as presidential historian for ABC News. And Dr. Mark Lawrence, he is the director of the LBJ Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. You've been very generous with your time twice now. <laughs> I had so many more questions. I'm grateful for your writings, for your generosity, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast again. It was so fun to talk to you both. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.